Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Today's guest is Gemini and Stage Raw Theater award-winning actor, Cara Pifko. She's been playing the character of Paige Novick on the Emmy Award-nominated television show, Better Call Saul, since 2016. She's been acting professionally since the age of seven. And she was even on recording at age of three with Sharon Lewis and Bram. The television show was The Elephant Show. She practically grew up on Canadian television shows and has appeared on Road to Avonlea, Our Hero, Human Cargo, and This is Wonderland, which in the lead role garnered her the Gemini Award for Best Actress. Her Canadian connection remains strong with her appearances on CBC's Heartland. She's appeared in many films. She's also done a lot of voiceover work in episodes of Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and video games. She balances her acting career with a passion for coaching actors, performers, and storytellers on life, writing, voiceover. A few weeks ago, we both decided to join for the very first time a conference call that a coach in Australia hosts, uh, Vanessa Talbot, and we were the both the first time joiners. And right away, I'm like, I know this woman. Totally knew her from Heartland. <laughs> so anyways, we we got together and we chatted and and we had a really interesting, wonderful chat about her whole acting career, her journey. So I know you'll enjoy it. So hello, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So right now you're in Better Call Saul. Is that kind of your your main acting gig right now? It is, yeah. And it's it's intermittent and now even more intermittent as we're on a perpetual pause waiting to see how we can go back safely. So it's it shoots in Albuquerque, so that means flights and hotels and all that kind of stuff. So we're we're waiting at the moment to figure out how it's going to go. Oh wow! I just I just looked it up that they've been nominated thirty nine times for Emmy awards. Yeah, and snubbed most and of never those won. times. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. The worst of that is Ray Seahorn because God, she's good. She's so good. She's she's restrained and refined and intense. And uh, she got an award for one of the little videos that they did, uh, the ethics of lawmaking or something like that. And it, it's this little short film that they made. And that's what she got a nod for, not not her work on the actual show. It's crazy. Well, maybe it'll be like Schitt's Creek. The final season, you'll get all the awards. I am hoping so. And then, and we are coming into the final season. So we'll see. You've been acting since you were eight years old. 
How did that come about? What first got drew you to acting at that such young age? Well, it came to me before I actually went professional is how it happened. Um, I was in a family circle with Sharon of Sharon Lawson Brand, the children's singers. Do you know them by any chance? Oh, yeah. I'm Canadian, so hmm. I know. Of course. <laughs> yes. So Sharon Hampson is actually my godmother. So oh, okay. she and she and my mom were childhood friends. And when they made their first record, I was three years old. And so they were using just whichever family kids they had around. And so I did a string of records. And then when they did their television show, The Elephant Show, I was invited to audition and got my first job that way. So I did five seasons of The Elephant Show, which was, you know, it's not like I had a tutor on set and all of that. It was like three or four episodes a season. And I did that from the age of five, excuse me, seven until 12. And it was after that, that I was like, oh, wait a minute, there's something here that I really, really dig. And so that's when I pursued getting an agent and started getting into the rigmarole of regular auditions and started professionally in earnest at the age of 12 after having the elephant show under my belt. Oh, cool. And is your family in entertainment? Not really. My, my grandmother was a musician uh, until she had kids. There's a lot of music. My brother, Andrew Pifko, is is very much in the business. He's also here in Los Angeles, as am I. Um, but my, my parents weren't professional at all. My, my dad plays the banjo and my mom had a string of, of dancing, but, but neither of them went professional with it. It was, it was my brother, Andrew, and I who, who really kind of broke that glass ceiling. Yeah, and once you got a taste of it, you're just hooked. <laughs> Yeah, it just it felt really natural, right from the elephant show. I, I remember my parents got co comments and compliments about how easily I took direction. And it just it felt easy. It, it's set to me feels like home. There's just I understand it. There's something that makes sense about it. And, and I'm sure we'll track this through. But jumping ahead when I migrated, if you will, from Toronto to Los Angeles, I was really shocked at how it was all the same. And I was pleasantly relieved because I got to my first American set on CSI Miami and was just like, oh my God, it's the same thing. All of the, all of the departments function in the same way. I knew how to tap into my part of the machine to make it, to make it all flow. So it's, it's really all the same. And it just, it, it feels like home there. Right. And so when you were young, what, other shows were you on mostly on CBC is that right there was a lot of CBC um Road to Avonlea had a string on that I did guest stars on oh gosh about a billion little shows um just kind of the whole gamut of what was around uh, you know in 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 my first 10 years there and then finally got my first lead of a series was was on CBC for a show called Our Hero. And that was the first time that I was the the, the actual lead of the show. So it was I was so grateful to have such a vet cast. Robert Bockstall really showed me the ropes and Mimi Kuzik as well of just how to break down my script to manage the out of order shooting and yet to maintain consistency and energy through that, um, as well as along the way there, there were 
commercials and that kind of stuff. I, I met my husband on a commercial at the age of 15 and um, TV movies, a film called Mariette and Ecstasy, um, went to theater school in, in Montreal um, at the National Theater School at the end of high school. Um, and then after that, I was able to bring in live theater and uh, switched to uh, OAZ, the agency that had a voice department and pulled that in. Um, so, so it was after theater school that I really started to feel like a professional. That's when I started to feel like this is what I'm, this is what I'm really doing. I'm not just, I, I had sort of lucked into it. It had, it had been presented before me and it was just an easy thing to do. So it was, it was after theater school that, that I had to be a bit more professionally minded about it. Right. And so before then you weren't really a trained actor. You were just kind of learning as you went. Pretty much. Um, I did go to Claude Watson, which was an arts school, and then followed that into Earl Haig in North Toronto, which was a, an arts high school. Um, so I certainly was in a pretty intense theater program uh, at high school, which I, I would definitely credit as being valuable training at a young age. They, they brought in masters for us to work with. Um, so that counted <laughs> but sure. but theater theater school was theater school theater school was was the intense cult that I didn't realize I had stepped into <laughs> and <laughs> um and learned to find my way inside of it and and really juice the goodness out of it including the relationships as well as the training that I got there some of my best lifelong friends came from from that theater school experience what made you choose uh the National Theater School of Canada over any of the other options? You know, I didn't apply anywhere else um, for theater school. That, that year coming out of high school, I did apply to York for philosophy. And uh, I did get in, but I got into the National Theater School as well. I got into to York and then got into the National Theater School. It was just from the research that I did, and I was really into research. I was very much, a, you know, alpha career-minded, really focused type person back then. <laughs> and um, National Theatre School was the best option for me. I was, I was less interested in having my theatre training be part of uh, a degree program and was more interested in the intense uh, training that the National Theatre School offered, really not knowing exactly what it was until I was there. I had no idea we'd be lying on the ground for hours and hours and hours just finding our breath and taking the machine apart and seeing all of the pieces, resisting trying to put it back together too soon. It was, it was a really, really intense experience and, and was what I was calling for. You know, something they said there was that your theater school experience gives you a, a condensed version of what you will learn out in the world, but it'll take you 15 years, whereas there we're doing it in four. And I would say that that's true. And also in an intensive theater school type experience, they're bringing in teachers, they're bringing in masters and, and those are few and far between out in the professional world. So I was really grateful for that as well. What was your first thing after you finished that? Were you, was your goal theater or was your goal film and television? What was your kind of purpose 
when you first finished school? When I finished school, my sights were set on film and TV. Um, but that was with the knowledge that you can make more of a career in film and TV than you can through theater. The truth is I've always been a theater animal from the time I was three years old and doing a ballet recital. I remember that feeling still in my body uh, in uh, at Claude Watson. I was a music major actually first before I switched over into drama and, you know, standing up with my alto saxophone to do my solo for God rescue Mary gentlemen. And that, that, that rush, that, that feeling of, of electrified presence and connection with the audience in real time uh, has been a powerful drone note for me throughout my, my time. So much as my focus went to, to film and TV, I was, I was actively cultivating uh, my theater career as well, which, which came together not immediately after, right after theater school, there was some downtime, which was great because I got to be an assistant on a couple of films for Sigourney Weaver and for Hume Cronin. Um, and that was before I did Our Heroes. So that was my first time being on set every day. I'd had lots of on set experience, but boy, is it different when you're an actor on set versus being on set every day as an assistant versus being on set every day when you know I was number one on the call sheet. There were very different experiences and each one kind of led to the next. In retrospect, I can see that those were really valuable building blocks for one another. Um, so it all kind of rolled out in retrospect because I had come from, from that theater school, I was able to get auditions for Canadian stage and, and all of the Toronto theaters. And my three theater career was born. Canadian stage kind of took me under their wing and, and I did a few productions for, for them. And then that led to um, Soul Pepper, which I very much had my sights set on during my theater school time. So I, I love it all. They each have their own benefit and, and same with voiceover and the cartoons um, and video games that I have done. Each one has its own um, way in to the creative animal and each one gives a different sized cage, if you will, or stage to allow that animal to, to speak, to roar, to express. Did you find that you had to kind of reintroduce yourself to the industry because you went from booking all these television shows, then you went to theater school and then you wanted to re-enter. Was that a challenge there or were you always a part of it? Um, I stayed in touch with the business in my summers in between. So that was when I did a sports show called Pumped um, where I was a host of the show and oh, Dale Burstein was the producer of that and was so lovely. And Richard Yearwood was my partner in crime on that show and, and a couple of other episodics at that time. So it, it didn't feel like a massive reintroduction, um, except for the fact that like with any person who transitions from being a child actor to a young adult or adult actor, um, I found that to be interesting. I, it was like how to put myself out there. I, I got headshots more often to keep up with the fact that I was, I was growing up yeah. that, you know, I was known by casting directors as a child and I had to more reintroduce myself as, okay, 
we're growing up here. Yeah. <laughs> little by little. What were some of the highlights of theater that you've done? What were your favorite roles that you played? Oh, each one is such a gem. Live theater is just has such a warm, fuzzy place in my heart. Um, let's see. Leo was a piece I did at Tarragon where we did a workshop and then a workshop performance. And then we came back to do a full production. Um, I was brought on to that by one of my theater school partners, Salvatore Antonio, who teaches now over at Armstrong um, Academy. I'm not sure what they call it, Armstrong Studios. Um, so it was, it was he and Sergio DeZio and I in, in Leo, which was uh, done almost in the round or in the triangle. We joked because it was the, the stage was designed more like a triangle. Um, it, was a, it was an interesting piece for so many reasons, but the one I'll highlight is when we would do school performances, uh, I can remember one night in particular where it, it was challenging for the young audiences because they were so physically close to us because it was in the Tarragon smaller space that when the two boys were coming in for a kiss, this one girl in the front row just couldn't handle it. And she was like, no, 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 no. And she's like slapping the, her, her leg. And I'm like two and a half feet off stage as it were on a little stool. And Salvatore was coming down to kiss Sergio, looks up at her and pauses for an interminable amount of time and then says, we will begin when you have settled down <laughs> and paused and waited. And so, and I could see she wasn't saying anything or doing anything. She was kind of shocked as one would be. And I leaned in and I said, he's, he's serious. He, he's not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, okay, okay. And then they continued. So working with Salvatore, cause he'd been a long time, very, very dear friend of mine was beautiful just because there was so much trust there when you're working with somebody who you know so well, you can really go into the opposing dynamics that two characters need to have in a well-written play like that. So that was one. Um, Abyss, also at Tarragon, uh, was 115 pages. I played the character I, and the other two characters were he and she. Um, and I've never had to speak that much because my character narrated everything as well as actually being in the scenes. And then Richard Rose, our director, staged it in such a way that the three actors were holding hands almost the entire show. So that got really crafty, especially during the love scene where <laughs> I'm still holding hands with somebody else behind me. But it was just a really, really powerful piece. Um, I have beside me, Good Night Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet. That was amazing because I got to work with Anne-Marie McDonald because um, she played the lead role, Constance, for that one. Um, incredible cast. Um, um, yeah, those, I guess those are the, the highlights of the theater world. Oh, and then, of course, coming down to L.A., fast forwarding a bit, um, I did this play, Rajon. Are you familiar with her at all? She's a real person. No. Yeah, look her up. Rajon was uh, a, a forerunner of the kind of theater that we do now. She was a trailblazer who kind of brought us from the highbrow impressionist theater where it was as much about making shapes with your body as, as it was about actually meaning anything you were saying. 
And uh, a friend of mine in a class that I connected with here in Los Angeles wrote this piece because she had family ties to Rajon. So she had all of her letters and wrote this beautiful play about her incorporating the fact that she was also a mother, Rajon, and, and balancing going on tour, leaving your baby, the, the, the fire of an artist. She, my, my friend Ilana Turner got all of that in there. And uh, I got a stage raw award for that one here in Los Angeles. And, and we did, oh, that one was so fun partially because we did much like we sort of did with Leo, but this was more extensive. Our director came in from England. He uh, is a physical theater director. So we would do whole workshops, just working on one aspect of what we would be layering in. So um, we did one whole workshop around the haka. Do you know that dance? The the Maori where where they slap their hand slap their hand against their arm and they stick their tongue out. They do it in sporting events oh, to yeah, intimidate yeah. the other team. Right. Yeah. So we incorporated some of that and physical theater and almost circus and and then we would have other other workshops where he would come to town. We would work for three weeks uh, just on on the relationships between the characters. So there was a bit of a revolving cast in in my various lovers um (laughs) but eventually it it found its way and we did a we did a production and it all came together cool um so you won a gemini award that is exciting (laughs) thank you so gemini award is uh canada's version of the emmys and what was the role on this is wonderland it was, yeah. it was on CBC and certainly a career highlight. Um, after, after our hero, it was, this is Wonderland that, that really put me on the map. It was, it was interesting. Um, so I actually booked this is Wonderland from South Africa where I was shooting a mini series called human cargo, beautiful piece of work. Um, I believe it's available if anybody wants to find it. And so I ended up booking a studio and getting my, my South African actress friend to, to read off camera. It wasn't even a private studio. They were making art in the corner. And that's how I sent in my audition for it. And, and uh, it, it turns out both were going to come out at the same time, Human Cargo and the first season of Wonderland. Um, I came back to Toronto met with uh, the writer George Walker, George F. Walker, who's certainly known prior to This Is Wonderland for his work in the theater world, um, met with with him and the producer and the other writer and <laughs> the one, this is an industry secret. I don't think I've ever said this out loud. Um, the one thing that he wanted to talk to me about was my voice because on Our Hero, coming from being kind of more ingenue, I was still kind of stuck in this upper register nasal thing. Um, I think because I thought it made me more endearing or something. Right. And he didn't, he didn't want any of that. So that was really <laughs> the only thing that he wanted to discuss was, was do I have access to the lower parts of my register? God, that was a dream show. Uh, it's a legal dramedy, uh, which leaned heavily more toward drama, I would say where it was set in City Hall in Toronto. And George and his writing partner, Danny, went to City Hall as a break from writing the theater that they were writing. But while they were at the courts, he was like, oh my God, this is absolutely a TV show. And he was hesitant to move into TV. 
Um, but the, 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 the scenes were just presenting themselves before him. So they incorporated some very real things like the 101 court, which is the mental health court. And there was a huge amount of our scenes and we would shoot like 11 and a half pages in a day. It was crazy. And, and it was so text heavy that I would work in the studios at night with George on the following day's material to start hashing it out and kind of getting in some pre-rehearsals because there just wasn't enough time in, in the evenings to, to finalize my text before I needed to come in and, and you know, be off book for these massive, massive scenes, especially in season one, where, where the, the weight of the show was much more on my shoulders. Eventually it got shared more. So dream, dream show. Um, a lot of theater actors, they brought in a lot of theater actors because that was George's world. Um, and then by that point, I had already led a show. So I had more of a sense of, of how to pace myself, how to lead. I sort of felt like the acting captain and, and took that role seriously, much like Ray Seahorn does actually on Better Call Saul. And then, yeah, eventually uh, I got a Gemini nomination. And then the following year, uh, a Gemini win. Actually, one of the scenes that I was nominated for was actually with Salvatore Antonio, that same actor who I, I did Leo with. So I thanked him in my Gemini speech. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, that that's like the dream. You know, everyone talks about winning an Emmy or Canadian Screen Award or Oscar. And so that's like the the highlight, you know, everyone wants to achieve. Um, at what point did you move to L.A.? I started the process while we were shooting This is Wonderland because, because I had access to kind of the top of, of our industry on that show. We had Eric Peterson and Sonia Smits and like, we just, we had all, um, uh, Brent Carver. I got to work with him. May he rest in peace. Ooh, there's some emotion. Ooh. Um, I was able to talk to a lot of folks about their careers and part of what I realized and had been researching for quite some time, but it all got crystallized during the second season or so of, of that show was kind of what my career was going to look like if I didn't make the move. And I had been feeling the call. It's not for everybody, but I had been feeling the call primarily because I, I was never after fame. I, I was after choice, though. Um, as, as, as many actors, as you know, who, who work primarily in Toronto, there's so much of American productions that come in, and you don't even have an opportunity to audition for, for some of the lead roles that, that we get cast um, in the supporting roles, which is still fabulous. Yeah, there's no small roles, just there's, there's, there's no small actors. There's no, anyway, there's, there's a phrase there that I can't remember. What's that phrase? <laughs> there's no small parts, just small actors. Is that it? I guess so. <laughs> I know that sounds wrong. That's that sounds wrong. Yeah. Too. It it. <laughs> but I don't believe we are small actors and, and that sort of gives a little window into what ended up happening for me of, of realizing how much of my own bigger power, bigger essence, bigger purpose, I could bring into the work. In any case, um, the call to Los Angeles was was about, I want to have choice. I don't want to be limited 
because of where I am geographically. So it was at that point that I started the lengthy and arduous process of, of applying for and getting my permanent resident card, which was um, 15, 17 years ago. Wow. Now? Time flies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and was it was it like a culture shock moving there or you were already instantly comfortable in the LA world? Well, I gave myself an entrance ramp. Um, when I first came down, I went to uh, a place called the Highland Gardens, which has been immortalized in a show. Oh, I forget what they called it. Jonas Chernick produced a show about life at the Highland Gardens because it, it, it felt like Melrose Place or, or, or some, it felt like a TV show. Right. Um, so I would come down just for pilot season at first, even while I was just applying for my green card, because that did take a long time to come through. Um, oh, career highlight theater, uh, Picasso, Le Pen and Gilles. It, it reminded me now because I had to like pursue, Steve Martin wrote Picasso, Le Pen and Gilles, which we did at Cannes Stage. And when I was applying for my green card, I needed to get letters from people who were in the industry in the U.S. So I had to uh, pursue Steve Martin's office to get a letter. <laughs> and then, I mean, he was involved in the casting, I hear, and he was, he was there for opening night. I certainly didn't work with him, but he was gracious enough to pass on a letter. Um, lost the thread. What were we talking about there? The getting um, adjusted to the LA life and moving there right. and all, and wait, all that you had to do to do that. It's not an easy Thank thing you. to just, you know, move down there for Canadians. People, no. people think it is. And, Oh yeah, I got to go to LA. And I'm like, yeah, but how, like, it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. The, hard the, to go the, there the legally anyways. There's a lot of under the table right. stuff, but to go there Which legally. you don't really want to do no. because then if you do actually get the interest for a potential job, if you don't have the paperwork, they're not going to hire you. Yeah. So I highly recommend the legal route unless somebody is just doing like reconnaissance. If somebody's just trying to see what it's like to get a feel, to, right. to run their contacts, to see, you know, what they can start to drum up. Absolutely make that first trip or first couple of trips to, to suss it out. Yeah. But when you want to get serious about it and you really want to be auditioning, get the paperwork, man. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, the entrance ramp vision or metaphor was, was coming down for these pilot seasons because, and staying at Highland gardens and that kind of thing. Cause it, it gave me a feel, a feel for it. And yeah, I kind of, something something came online in a new and interesting way it was like there is something about artists here that had had vision and drive and ambition which is now a dirty word for me but I'm working with <laughs> it I've got poetry about it <laughs> but at the time it was much clearer um about that part of it and 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 the follow-through it's like there really was that sense that I can make my own career here, make or break, flail or fly. It's on me, as opposed to what I felt like in in Toronto was was I was at the mercy of whatever whatever I was deemed to be appropriate for. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. 
Like you had to kind of take whatever was offered to you here. Yeah, like there were there were there were paths that one could take in Toronto, and I w- I'm very grateful that I was able to key into those paths and and had done well. You know, um, I did a string on the Associates, and you know, a, a whole bunch of shows. So I was I was keyed in, but I just saw that everything that I was going to do from because I had achieved the height of what happened on on This Is Wonderland that it was going to be lateral moves. And I just, I felt a calling that I didn't fully even understand. I I needed to put it in terms of the acting business because that's all I knew. That was my total focus. So when I, after I started coming for the pilot seasons and I I wanted to be here for longer, I got my first place for, for six months and found a class, which I think is also really important from an advice point of view of, of somebody coming to Los Angeles is Man, the industry is is not enough to keep a person sane. And it's a big city with everything you could possibly want is available. So find your your hobby or classes to keep you tapped in to to friend networks and passion networks and, and outlets for your creative drive that isn't purely in the hands of casting directors. I think that's important. Right. Yeah. So that's what I did. And, and through this class, um, I was able to start to feel what life was like here. And that's when I stumbled into more of a spiritual awakening. And in retrospect, I think it's really my call to Los Angeles was okay, fine. Three, I'll include the business, because that's what first brought me here. But the spiritual calling and how that all fleshed out and opened and continued to bloom. And my kids, I now have two kids. And I remember having a pretty weird moment when I was in Toronto and and um, I lived in the, the East End and Wonderland was going. My husband, well, he wasn't my husband at the time, but he is now my boyfriend and I had this extra room and I could feel that it like, according to the social structures, it was time. I was, you know, in my mid twenties, it was like time to have a baby. We've got the room. And I had this out of body experience. My boyfriend and I were downstairs. It feels weird calling him my boyfriend now, but it sounds kind of fun. I've got a boyfriend. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I was down downstairs with my boyfriend and I felt uh, a, a, a sensation of leaving my body and floating up the stairs and floating to the edge of that room that could have been a baby's room. It was our offices at the time, but in the vision, it was, it was a, a nursery and I'm getting chills remembering it. I, I saw myself and I was not in a good way, Diane. I was, I was not well. I was like, the worst of postpartum depression. And I hovered there for a while and watched this experience and then came back down into my body. And that's when I decided I wanted to come to LA. Hmm. Somehow you knew staying in Toronto and building the life that you wanted was not going to be a good thing (laughs) staying there. Yeah. Yeah. And, And now having two kids, there's something about, their spiritual contract on this planet that wanted them to be born here. I I don't fully understand that yet because they're both still pretty young, 
but I, I know that puzzle piece to be true. And, and I think that's part of the reason why things have gone the way they have for me. And I've made the choices that I have, because I do believe in co-creation, not just, you know, following along with some divine intervention. But I think it was, it was that trifold that, that actually motivated me to come here. Right. And did things kind of take off quickly or was there struggle? What were the struggles along the way? Oh my God. Uh, so certainly, I mean, the struggles were there all along. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of giving the highlights, sure. right? So that means you're getting all of the, all of the, the ups. Um, but, but of course there were struggles in, in Toronto, long periods without work, um, which, which happened here as well. But in LA, I think part of the struggle that I had a really hard time overcoming was oh crap, now I need to step up my image. I felt like I, I needed to keep up with the Joneses, um, lose weight, even though I wasn't overweight, right. um, but that I needed to, to lose weight. And I remember one audition where I'm standing there in three and a half inch snakeskin heels, low cut shorts or short shorts and you know a, a, a pretty revealing top. And I think at the time I just felt like I'm doing what I need to be doing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I was kind of like convincing myself that that's just what was necessary. Right. But I had like sold my soul for, for what I thought I needed to do for the business. It was not me. Right. That's not me. I, I certainly didn't book that role or any other role that, that I went into with that, headspace. And, and I think I kind of um, um, damaged what could have been the first five years of my experience here because of, a, of an idea that I had, a false image that I had of what one needs to do to keep up with the industry in Hollywood. And I would, I would pass that on too to anybody who, who was coming here, you know, now at a similar point in, in their career transition to, to wanting to come here, that goodness gracious, in all that is true for you, hold on to that essence of who you are. It's so necessary. That's how we need to show up. That's how you want to stand out. You want to be different be you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you're not going to book it. If you're just going in and acting like you think you're supposed to act and then which, exactly. and which is fake and what every other actress is doing there too. Right. But if you can right. bring something of yourself into yes. it, it's way more authentic. Nobody else can touch that. Your, your vocal individuality is as unique as your thumbprint your, your, your body, your energy, then therefore your take on the character. If you're willing, you know, that that's the scary part is, is less, can I, can I lose enough weight? And can I, you know, when I found out one girlfriend of mine down here was waxing her arms, I was like, I don't, that was like a line in the sand for me somehow. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not waxing my arms. That was that I would wear the heels. I would wear the snake skin. I would wear the short shorts, <laughs> but I wasn't going to wax my arms. That was too far. But if, 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 if you're showing up as, like you said, almost like a, like a, a puppet or a, a marionette of what you think the industry wants, 
all that they're going to get is a husk of a human, as opposed to being the, the scary thing I was about to say is the, 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 the step and the risk of being vulnerable, the step and the risk of actually bearing who you are through whatever material you are given. That is how you show up uniquely. That is how you stand out. That is how you maintain your sense of sanity and integrity in an industry that is not designed to care for you or your sanity or your integrity. Right. So how do you do that if you're, you know, going for a role that is like complete opposite of you? How do mm -hmm. you approach that? How do, do you try and find if you do you try to think of what you would do in the situations that that character's in, how do you kind of connect when it's someone that's mm. completely different than you? Or do mm. you just not go mm -hmm. with those roles? That's a really good question. And the only role I ever turned down, of, I got more selective later, but for most of my career, uh, was um, for a voiceover for Bioshock because the, the script was misogynistic, if not um, abusive towards women. It was just gross. Right. So, so I, I do draw lines in the sand um, for things like that. Um, and then later I, I, I just um, have better talks with my representation so that they understand who I am as I reinvent myself again and again, right. so that I can call roles that aren't necessarily like me, but are interesting and fun and, and, and whole people. But to your question, it's a similar process to, to how I approach roles that, that are uh, seemingly more like me. I, I think of acting as if you imagine that you could put your, entire personality and identity and beingness on a number of dials in front of you. Imagine you're almost like in a mixing board and you've got like 15 dials in front of you that range from one to 10. That every time I approach a character, it's, it's about turning up and down certain dials along that mixing board of, of who I am. So that's my starting point is even if it's somebody who is seemingly not like me at all, I, I find some place, there's some place where, where I have something in common on some level with this person. So I find that place of connection. Um, that's how I live my life as well. That, you know, that's my reason for, for, for doing this work still low these, you know, 40 odd years later that I look for the place where I can meet my audience. I look for the place where I can bring in connection between me and other people. And then I do the backstory. Um, I create uh, a whole history of, of, who, of who this character is and, and where she comes from and who her influences were. Um, and then I'll, I'll walk it. And if, if I, I'll get somebody who, who can do like a character interview, have you ever heard of those? character interview no yeah yeah so if I'm starting a new character I would work with let's say you and I would just have you like ask me questions and I would answer as that character okay. and it's improv but in that process I and I, I would record it I would stumble across numerous things that I never would craft out of my mind out of my thinking 
that that I stumble upon from being her, from stepping in, even though I don't fully understand who she is yet, it's through that process that I will discover who she is. So so that's sort of an example of of the process for me. Oh, that's really cool. I love the way you described it. It's like you put me in a music studio with a producer. <laughs> Yay. I love and it. And that's a happy place. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that, you know. Um, but also it's it brings to mind things that I coach on because mm-hmm. even more so now, it's so important to really get to know yourself and your strengths and your weaknesses and your stories and experiences and kind of keep them all mm-hmm. top of mind so that when you are approaching mm-hmm. a character, you can think back to those experiences that you may have had that might, you know, give the similar performance emotion in the character. I'm, I'm nodding with my whole upper body. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, as a, as a younger actor, I remember doing the thing like a lot of people do where, you know, you find yourself crying and you, you see if you can catch yourself in the mirror. And my, my daughter is six right now. And I see her doing that where she'll be like so upset about something, but then she'll like watch herself cry <laughs> in the mirror. I'm like, I see you girl. I see what you're doing. Um, but, but I think what's, what's better than, better than that. I mean, not better for me, it's better. There, there are those that really benefit from an outside in approach. What does it look like? when I cry would be an outside in approach versus what does it feel like? Where, where does it tighten up in my body? How, what is, what happens in my voice? When I get upset, it brings a tightness to my voice that then brings the result of, of that kind of crack in the voice. But it comes from the, the feeling that bellows up from my gut where it, the emotional center up through my body, I get a tightness in my belly, I get that tightness in my throat, I get a sting in my eyes. And and those are my internal tools that help bring about um, what what a you know, for an emotional scene, what what a character needs. And then my outside in is music. Sometimes when I've got big scenes, I'll I'll bring music that keeps me in the zone and and I'll go a little method on on days like that so I don't have to keep jumping in and out right that's really cool um I saw that you did general hospital yes what did you learn being on the set because I hear it's very different from every other set um what did you learn in being in that soap opera experience yeah I don't I I General Hospital was a really interesting experience. Um, I, I was brought on as as a lawyer. That was that's my that's my hot spot. Um, you know that's what I did all through This Is Wonderland. Um, it ends up being what I did later in Better Call Saul. So there's there's something for me there, and I recognize that. And so when I was brought on as this lawyer, and everything was feisty and fabulous, they liked they liked me and. For a show like General Hospital, what that means is they bring you back and they play play around with kind of where to where to find you. And in the playing around with where to find me, man, it was just a weird experience. It was just weird. Um, there was there was no rehearsal. Um, the actors were in um, kind of like dorm rooms below the stage, and we would get uh, a call out for a series of scenes, like uh, over the loudspeaker, uh, scenes 10 through 21 to the stage, please. 
And so we would, we would go up and um, we would block it. And the stages were uh, almost like a proscenium theater so that the cameras could just slide from one scene right over to the next. And they shoot so fast, you know, if we did four takes, something's wrong. We would off, like, the, I laughed out loud the first time they said, great cut, moving on. I was like, seriously, that's going on TV? <laughs> like, I'm like, that, that blew my mind. Um, everybody was fabulous. It was, it was nothing personal. It was just the way that it was constructed didn't fit my actor's animal. It, it, it just, it, it didn't feed me in the, in the ways that I am in this industry for, um, oftentimes that I never met the director, the director also would be in some faraway room and we would get notes over the loudspeaker. Uh, I just, I, and then, and then I think one, both, both the, the, the show and I were kind of like rattling against one another because we were trying to find a place where I fit. I think I did like nine or 11 episodes. We were like trying to find a place where I fit, but I just, the, the, the nature of how they shoot did not agree with the kind of actor animal that I am. So I don't, I don't speak about it very often because I don't right. feel fond about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was curious about. Cause you know, then on the other side of that, some people have made amazing 40 year careers yeah. out of being on a soap yeah. opera. So I know for them. them it fits. Right. Exactly. It's, it's an art yeah. form in and of itself. That's, that's really why I say it that way is that it doesn't, it didn't agree with me, my kind of acting animal. It's, it's not a slight right. to, to the show or anybody who does them. I, I have dear friends who Vanessa Antoine, who I, I met on Heartland does, does a lot of general hospital and she and I are similar actors. We haven't had a proper sit down about how she's able to make something work that I, that I couldn't. Um, but I, I do know those who who have have made quite a career out of it and all the power to them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you say Heartland. That's one of my favorite shows. Is it? Uh... I think of it as a warm hug. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it was one of those shows that was like Netflix kept r referring to me and I kept ignoring it. And then uh -huh. once I started, I binged. <laughs> And that's a long binge because that show's that been on for like 13 years. Yeah. I think yeah. it was at 10 years when I first discovered it. Now I've, I've since gone through and watched it all again. Because oh. it's just that it's just it's so yeah. it's so family friendly. Yeah. <laughs> like it's such a it's such an innocent show, but yeah. I love it. <laughs> and doesn't so, it appeal to like the little girl in you? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, sometimes I think about why I like it so much because it, you know, it's kind of a family show and, mm -hmm. but I, I want to be part of that family. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be happy to know that I feel the polar opposite to General Hospital about Heartland that yes. it, it, it felt like a warm hug being on this show. There was, there was, there was care and love at every turn. Um, when, when we arrived, we got riding training and they were like the best horses ever and I needed to learn their language because they knew what they were doing so I needed to be brought up to to their level so that we could do really cool things like um if you put your heel into them just so 
it was asking the horse to move dressage style sideways. So like if we would come around into our mark and then they would set up cameras and realize they needed us a little closer, it was as simple as putting your heel in just so, so and like just sidestepping one step as if it was just you on the ground to get a little closer to your scene partner. I mean, and those environments like, to spend time, you know, in between takes riding back to your, your first mark. It's just so dreamy. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot about horses and yes. <laughs> I love animals. So I learn a lot about horses. And then sometimes when, you know, one of the characters, basically, you know, the father be- becomes such a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it, but then I think, but that's family. You know, that mm, no matter how right, much of a jerk he right. can be, yep. in the end, they're all still family. It's just this yeah. one of those things that you have to put up with when you're part of a we, family like that. We know those we know those sides of our family. Yeah. yeah so similarly on, on Heartland, you know, there was that feeling of like, ooh, we like each other. And so I was really, really happy when uh, they took my uh, very anxious very city oriented character and brought me back to have my wedding there and have kind of a come to Jesus that my character had um, when I was brought back the second time to become somebody who was much more chill and um, relaxed and kind of like, like Heartland finally won me over, won my character over into, into their ways. And that was a real treat because um, Gord Rand, who played my husband um, on that show, is the same actor who I did Abyss with, which I had already mentioned here. So it's 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 a and and like the um, continuity uh, person was was from This Is Wonderland. Um, now my dear friend Megan Follows is like a major director there. Oh, that's another theater highlight. Top Girls. We did two two versions of it. Remounts are amazing. I love remounts. Um, and then, and then we came back again with our son who was autistic. And so we got to work with the horses in a different way because of the storyline around this autistic boy who was played by an actor who wasn't autistic, but they had a advisor on set who was very well informed, both in her personal and professional life about autism and using animal therapy, horse therapy. Uh, so it was, it was a very well-informed experience that played into that story that people are really living really, really beautifully, really, really nicely. It's just, it's mindful, heart-filled, careful, sensitive storytelling. I loved every minute of it. Yeah, maybe that's why I liked it. Because I've, I've, I've always been like the diehard big city <laughs> Uh-huh. I I grew up in the suburbs of Vancouver and that was too okay. too small for me. So, uh-huh. Toronto, I've been the diehard never leaving. I love it, but mm-hmm. the last, you know, few years I'm kind of I think I'm I, I don't think my future's in Toronto. Wow. And and I start wow. to vision living near horses and you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Some people have known me a long Toronto. time. They wonder, "What? You?" And some people that grew, maybe because I never grew up in a typical small town, people that grew up in small towns tell me, oh, no, no, no small town. And I'm like, uh-huh. I don't know, maybe I want to try it. Maybe I won't like well, it, but you know. 
you know what? We do evolve though, don't we? Yeah. Like eventually you, you start, you know, being okay with a calmer life. Yeah. Or, or whatever it is, how, how a person changes, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, even from the point of view of allergies that every seven years, we might be allergic to something all of a sudden that we never, never were or vice versa. And, and I take that as a sign of how we can shed our skins and, and reemerge with, with vulnerability. And um, I don't know, it's kind of scary to, to reemerge as, as something different than you were. But I, I think that that's a part of, I think that's a part of life. So I loved Toronto. I still love Toronto so much. I miss the theater community. I miss my friends. I miss my family terribly, especially these days. Um, but I, 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 in this life stage, I'm, I'm, I'm where I need to be here. Right. And are you like central LA or do you live a little bit out? No, I'm out. So, um, uh, I certainly had my Hollywood days, um, Highland Gardens to start with is, is, is very much Hollywood. Um, and then my first apartment was, uh, East end, but still kind of close to, to the heart of things. I mean, that's just it. LA is so spread out. Like there's so many hearts around LA that you can kind of get away with being like where I am now, which is Northeast LA kind of in between Pasadena and Glendale. Um, and it it does not feel, (laughs) I was told once that Eagle Rock, the, town I guess you could say that I live in or part of LA that I live in is where artists come to hide (laughs) 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 which may be true but it's close enough to everything I mean I can I can you know I I have and some things are just far you know if I have auditions in Santa Monica that's an hour and 15 minute drive um but I I'm but I'm happy here this is it, it, it it is like a little community it feels like a little town I'm close to everything without feeling like the the Hollywood vibe that that I enjoyed when I first came. But speaking of evolving, I, I found I, I, I didn't want to live in anymore. Right around mother o'clock, <laughs> I realized that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And so I guess the main credit that we haven't talked about is how did you get Better Call Saul? And mm. I've also seen that you've done a lot of voiceover stuff, so... Tell me about that. Okay. So Better Call Saul came um, as an audition to casting directors that I had seen many, 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 many times. So for those actors who are listening, who feel like, well, come on, I've auditioned so many times. It's so common. It's so common. Um, NCIS, The Associates, um, and just numerous shows with these casting directors. Each of those examples are, are things that I've auditioned for anywhere between 11 and 15 times before I booked with, with those casting directors or on those shows. It happens. It, yeah. it, it's, it's not personal. It's just about finding the right fit. And if you're being called back again and again by casting directors or for a certain show, it means they love you. They're just trying to figure out where to put you. So don't lose hope. Yeah, in the, um, in a summit today, someone said that you're you're not necessarily going to auditions to book that role that you're going for. You're booking the room. You're making relationships with the casting directors. So agreed, agreed, a hundred percent. And this was a nice one because I'd actually befriended one of the casting directors and had been to her house for her kid's birthday and all this kind of stuff. So 
um, I, I knew for a fact that they that they liked me very much. And they did cast me in something else, but I can't remember what at this second, um, an episode of something that I can't recall at this moment. But the Better Call Saul audition was interesting because they were so tight lipped about the scripts that what they gave me for the audition was something completely different. They was it was it wasn't quite improv, but there was certain points. It was like it was so weird. It was like I was listening to what they were saying and I got the material and as they were telling me what I needed to do for the scene, it's like I was listening to their words and their description far more than I was listening to what the text was. Whereas, you know, normally it's like you've got your script and that's what you focus on. In this case, I got that it was important that I was Kim's friend as well as her business partner, that, that I was professional, but it was okay to be outside of like the box of, of what professionalism means. And my intuition just keyed me on to what they were telling me more than hitting the beats and the notes of this particular script, which as it turns out, was from some other show entirely. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was enough. And it was a very traditional um, audition experience because uh, it's a role that grew rather than um, starting out as, as a significant recurring role. It, it, it was intended that it could go that way, but they didn't really know yet. So I didn't need to do a screen test and do that whole thing. It was, it was that audition and a callback and, and that was it. Um, and in the, in the first season that I show up, I, I didn't actually speak that much, but in a conversation with one of the producers once, and I think this is an interesting point to pass on to actors who might be listening as well. The thing that they really liked was how I listened. And that's really, really important because I really feel like better acting comes from better listening. It's so much less about what you do than how you're receiving and processing during somebody else's lines. And then that informs how what you say comes out as opposed to playing out the plan you had when you you know rehearsed this in your shower and in your private spaces and then delivering that plan. That's boring. Yeah. It's predictable. That's cookie cutter as opposed to a living, breathing human. And most shows, especially good shows like Better Call Saul, are looking for breathing humans. So it was a, it was a beautiful compliment. And, and they followed up with it and kept writing me in more and more and more. Um, and then I got to work with my most beloved scene partner, Rex Lynn, who we just have a ball. We're like Mutton and Jeff. I don't know if you've seen any of it, but you know, he's this big Texan dude and I'm this little brunette thing. And, and we play off of each other so well, both on screen and off. He's, he's become a dear friend as well. And, you know, actually one other thing I really love about Better Call Saul is you know, you can probably pick up my love of rehearsals. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when when we rehearse on Better Call Saul, granted, it's not theater rehearsals, it still is television style rehearsals, but they clear the room. And I remember one of my first bigger scenes um, in Chicanery, which was one of the um, scenes where, where I got to take um, Chuck to town and or to the mat, as it were, and really kind of flex my muscles as Paige, my character on that show. Um, and um, 
Peter Gould was directing that one. And I remember him sitting cross-legged in the courtroom and in, in, nobody else was there except the actors and, and the first AD. And he just looked so happy as we were, we were speaking his words, which he said later, he says, it's, just, it's so nice to hear my words. And he just, he looked so happy to, to see <laughs> something that he had written come out and being played out, you know, from, from his mind to the stage. And it certainly wasn't his first episode by any means. This is, you know, of course, after all of Breaking Bad, and it wasn't his first directorial debut either. Um, but he was so in love with the process and that's infectious. Yeah. And it makes this part of the reason why that set is, is such a beautiful place to be and to work. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so energizing when you see people who are very passionate about what they do. It just, mm. I love watching that no matter what you do. Like I don't like cooking, but if I have a friend who just loves cooking, I right? love watching totally. them because they're just so happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who can talk about cooking as if it's lovemaking and it's yeah. just beautiful. I mean, like I'm mixing ingredients, things that were never meant to be together. And then I mix them and they become something beautiful. I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's why it's important to go after what you're passionate about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the voiceover side, um, is it just a really interesting series of stepping stones? Um, again, perseverance, consistency, voiceover to me is a playground because for voiceover, I'm not limited by my image at all. It's like right. the antithesis of those first years in LA. I mean, I can be a little girl, I can be a bowl of soup, I can be an evil, you know, demon, I can be, you know, and 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 have enjoyed all of those. So it's to to be free of your image is <laughs> joyous. Um, and also in voiceover, there tends to be a lot more freedom for the high highs and the low lows. Things can become far more extreme, yeah. right? I mean, in, in, you know, battle scenes and everything. So um, there, funnily enough, there was a lot of voice work in Our Hero, that first series that I led, because there was all of these cut scenes with animations. So I got a lot of voiceover experience under my belt on that show, as well as just kind of coming up through the industry with um, commercials and and I did a, a number of radio plays. Um, I did uh, a few audio books, um, which which were all really really fun. The radio plays were a blast. Um, you know, I got my start in a studio, right, with the Sharon Wilson right. Graham Records. So it that sort of all felt very familiar. Um, and now, as well as uh, doing, I guess the the biggest thing that I've been in. Uh, recently is the Star Wars Clone Wars series um, where they keep finding places for for my character to come back so that's very enjoyable um, working with masters like D. Baker who honestly this dude can do four you, how, how do you feel about accents are you are you are you any good at accents? Me? no <laughs> I'm I like can do a bunch I'm not an actor but- I <laughs> Uh, when someone talks to me in an accent, I kind of like it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's a good start. He, he can, 
Australian to me is one that I just won't even touch. I just, I, I, I can't hold it. I, I merge, I, I blur into other things. This dude can do four different Australian guys <laughs> in one scene and run it as, as a whole scene. So he'll, he, he won't like run it as one character and then run it as the next character and then run it as a third character. No, he'll wow. change in live time over the course of the scene to pull off one that's more, and they're all drones, right? So they all do have a similar um, vocal pattern and, and professional history, but one broke out and became a farmer, like the one who plays my husband, because I'm this Twi'lek character who, you know, she's a, she's a French Canadian sort of, I pulled from French Canadian, she's an alien, but I pulled from French Canadian for her. And, you know, but I come from a, a, a war-torn background as well. And so he's my husband and he's the one who got out anyway, watching him work is, is just such a treat. And then um, that's one of the umbrellas that I coach under is for voiceover coaching. So I'm doing a lot of that these days, especially since COVID, because now everybody wants to be a voiceover perform performer right. for good reason. So I'm, I'm very busy as a voiceover coach under the umbrella of Great Big Voices, www.greatbigvoices.com cool. um, with my partner, Sunday Muse, who's also a, a friend of mine from theater school. And she's like a Care Bear and... Uh, uh, Total Drama Island and, you know, a, a ton of big shows um, and our other partner who's from Sesame Street. So the three of us run this business where we're doing a lot of voiceover coaching. I mean, even the coaching is so fun for the same reasons, like getting, you know, both kids and adults to, to step into the playful world of voiceover. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like playing pretend <laughs> as a kid. There's, there's, there's no limitations in voiceover. And, and I just adore that aspect of it. Wow. That's fun. Cause yeah, it, it gets you out of your comfort zone too. You just got to play and be a, a fun, cute character. <laughs> yeah. It helps you find zones that used to be of comfort when you were little. It, it, it's really that sense of childhood yeah. play in voiceover and a huge amount of, of, of technical need and necessity, like timing of things is, is quite astounding when, when they'll say, okay, great. That was 0.5 seconds too long. And we, <laughs> and, and you need to be able to, to shorten it just so, and there's a huge amount of technical aspect too, but once you get that under your belt, Ooh, yeah. fun. And then motion capture. I did some motion capture where you're like, you're wearing the suit and the dots all over your body. And oh my God, the motion capture was super fun. We got that was in out in Vancouver. We got flown up. Cool. So for all of this, what is your why? Yes. Why do you do what you do? Mm. You know, I'm at a stage in my life now, having gone through these many metamorphoses. And as a, as a coach, my mission statement is to help writers and actors align their spirituality and their craft. And the reason that I feel so driven to do that for writers and actors is because it was such a huge shift for me to move out of that paradigm of the snakeskin heels, trying to please producers, to a place of how can I find more of myself in this character? 
how can I reveal and discover more of my truth in this character or this coaching session or this trip to the grocery store? My why is about integration, bringing together the very many aspects of who we are. Um, my father has this beautiful quote that I love that we are a mosaic of polar opposites. Okay, cool. So I used to play in the compartmentalizing of those polar opposites. And now I'm at a stage where I want to integrate and have been on a path of integrating so that we can meet each other so that we can elevate as a human race into something that is more collective and universal and supportive. And my skill set is in the arts. My skill set is as a creative. I'm not a politician. I don't do that work. So I need to use the avenue that, that I have to be my integrated truth, help others come to their integrated truth, to use an embodied performance to bring forward the individual as a collective of all of my mosaic pieces and to bring that forth in others so that we can meet each other and vibrate at a higher frequency. If I could be more California, <laughs> that would be my answer. <laughs> I mean, I've been here too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have a purpose in life and know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. And to have an impact and be able to help other people too. Mm -hmm. As 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 do you, and it's it's beautiful what you're what you're bringing forward and how you're bringing it forward. Similar to to you, you you you've got that word purpose in mm -hmm. in what you're bringing forward, and and I think when performers are trying to create out of that thin picture of what they think they're supposed to be. It's just a pathway to insanity and misery. And if they can align to, to their purpose, as you say, or, or pulling together the, 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 these polar opposites of who they are and aligning it through their craft, you kind of can't go wrong then it's not a matter of, did I book it or didn't I? Am I, am, I, am, I, am I on my path? Am I doing what I love to do? Am I, am I speaking my soul's voice? And if I can do that every time I show up for whatever material, then I'm serving my soul's purpose. Wonderful. Well, that's... Om namo gurudev namo. <laughs> <laughs> and now we will have a meditation review. <laughs> Cool. So where can people find you online? Well, I've been doing these live conversation on Instagram at Kara Pifko, uh, Kara with a C, C-A-R-A-P-I-F-K-O. And I'll be bringing more of those around creative intelligence, creative currency, bringing on uh, guests. Next up is Toronto actress, Tony, actor, excuse me, Tony Napo. Um, so people can find those there and my Facebook group I'm proud of called restart your art is, uh, like a living gallery of creative works that I started, uh, about three years ago now. And, um, I'd love to, to bring people there. So it's, it ended up being primarily uh, visual artists. It wasn't my original intention. There's, there's a few poets and musicians there as well. 
Um, and that's where I run my programs out of my, my restart your art program, basically about how to become uh, an embodied performer. Oh, cool. Wow. Thank you so much for your time. I love this conversation and I'm sure others will as well. So thank you so much. I hope so. Thank you so much. What a, what a trip. I've not spoken through most of that in, in a very, very <laughs> long time. So thank you that's so much. That's the thing about podcasts. It's like, right. that's what really got me into the podcasting at first, yeah. because when I started listening to them, it's like, you know, you listen to interviews on television or any other medium. It's like a quick, you know, the highlights, the sound bites, and you're done. And so right. it's the same interview, every outlet. And then all of a sudden these podcasts, it's like, it's an hour or longer sometimes with people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What a treat. Thank you so much. What a, what a gift. And please keep up the beautiful work that you're doing. Anybody who works with you is, is lucky to be there. And thank you so much for having me on. Cool. Thank you. Wasn't that lovely? For links and a transcript, visit singdanceactthrive.com slash 051. Thanks for listening to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Be sure to join the mailing list at dianefoy.com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose-driven performing artists and industry influencers. 